adventures that I was on this summer. Uh, maybe more on that some other time, but it was a refreshing time. And I do appreciate all of your prayers and all that God has done. Uh, California was incredible. Two and a half weeks at school, uh, eight to five every day. Only had one day off. And uh, it was amazing. Um, it was a lot of work, but it was so good. So refreshing, really built up. And then, of course, then we went uh, on vacation for a bit and just got the rest we needed, spent some time with grandparents, and uh, it, was, it was good. So, but it is good to be back with you. I missed you so much. Uh, I've tried staying off my phone for the most part, uh, but occasionally I'd get a text here or there, and, and I'd um, shoot it off and just say, you know, thanks for your prayers and, and all that. And so I'm really thankful for you guys, and I love this church. Uh, it's been nine years now uh, in November, and about 10 years ago, uh, we were asked to plant the church, and so we took about a year to plan and to pray and to search out the land and scout out the land and pray and, uh, and then evangelize the campus here at UCF, and uh, a church came out of it. So, and you are that church, and we're so thankful for you. Um, honestly, just I, I couldn't imagine doing life without this church. It truly is family. I mean, when I think about home, uh, I used to think it was Chicagoland because that's where I grew up. But the, for the last 13 years, I've been in Florida, and it truly is home, and it just feels the most restful here. Uh, it truly is a, a place you could call home yourself, uh, and I know that uh, many of you guys do, and I'm grateful. Every time I go somewhere, people are asking, you know, is it, you plant near a college town, you know, and how does that work? You know, it's a revolving door around those places. And I said, well, not with us. Uh, people did start in college and they stayed. And, uh, and uh, they always say, well, did you, did you give them the Kool-Aid? And, uh, and I, you know, I, <laughs> yes, I did. No. <laughs> uh, and we're all alive and happy. But um, we are uh, thrilled that people did decide to stay and, and know that they have a purpose uh, we truly are a family who seeks God together on mission, and you, it's not just a saying or slogan. Certainly, we didn't come up with it the first day we did church. We sort of came up with it probably somewhere around last year or something like that, I think it was. And it's just a, it's, a, it's more of like, a, it's not a statement that I wish we could be this, these people. It's just, this is who we are. Uh, we can't help but be those people. And so, super thankful that we are people who do seek God. Uh, just like that song says, you know, I love you, Lord. Uh, there is nothing in the scriptures uh, you can't find I love you, Lord, uh, it, often or if not any time in an Old Testament because no one dared said, it would say that. No one would say I love you, Lord, because they knew it was impossible. After you read Deuteronomy, you realize you have to love God. If you love God, you have to love him with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, everything you have. And I don't think anybody here does that. And a, a, a better prayer would be, uh, or, or a better way to say that is, Lord, I know when, when you sing the song, I said, Lord, I, I don't love you like that. Uh, I don't even, some days I don't love you, and it shows, and, but help me to love you. Help me to love you. That's the more biblical. In fact, Peter didn't even want to say that to Jesus, did he? I mean, he said he didn't want to use the agape love. He couldn't. He knew that the, the only agape love there is is when God loves us. And Peter, Peter had a brotherly love and affection towards the Lord, and the Lord knew that. But he didn't even want to do that. He couldn't commit to that. And neither can we, Right? So, we'll start off on the right foot with, Lord, help me to love you. Help me to know you. Help me to be hungry in your word. 
because there's so many days you wake up, you're just not hungry. Uh, and, you know, we don't have to fool our roommates or our family or spouses or kids. Just pray the prayer, model it, be an example to it, and watch the Lord move through you powerfully. Amen? All right. Thank you, Heath, for an amazing time uh, for these last five weeks. And, and Tyler did a great job as well. And I'm uh, just thankful for the men in the house and just having uh, a team of 12 elders. It's, it's been honestly an amazing ride with these guys since the beginning. Many of them have been here since the beginning. And uh, I really could not, there's no way we could do it without a plurality of leaders. And that's how a church really should function in that way. There's not one man, it's not a one-man show, but it's a plurality of leaders. All right, that's enough with the intro. Okay, so (laughs) let's move on to Acts 27. As you guys know, uh, there are so many different crises around the world. Uh, Of course, we have our own, right? Uh, We went through the last 18 months, can you believe it? We went through COVID-19, it's still here. It's probably not ever gonna go away. Elections, riots, uh, of world affairs, personal crisis at home, at work, and ministry. There's so many different crises. And I do believe that many of us live from crisis to crisis. Uh, whether we're helping somebody through uh, a, a bad marriage or we're counseling people through bad decisions or we're, whatever it might be, there's always gonna be some sort of crisis surrounding us, right? And thankfully, the Bible is chock full of examples and how to lead through crisis. And we find ourselves in Acts 27 and leading through crisis. And honestly, it couldn't be a better message for today. And honestly, the, when I read through this, I just saw Paul just come up through the pages of the book of Acts again. As I left off, uh, ironically, at Acts 20 and just seeing the amazing example that he had for the Ephesian leaders, knowing that they probably would go through a crisis, and they did, right? As we, if you remember going through that passage, they, the, in Revelation later on, uh, they, their love grew cold. And then in the second century, one of the church fathers reported that there was a revival in Ephesus. And now that church now today doesn't exist. But when we look back at that passage, we saw Paul's amazing example of leadership. He was an amazing leader. Of course, he didn't do it in his own strength. It was God moving through him. And we come to the famous shipwreck passage, which is really incredible, and it speaks to so many different principles here. But I think what you could get from this this morning is that here's a man who led through crisis, and he didn't lead as a free man, but as a prisoner. And let me just remind you again where, where where this picks up. Basically, Paul has been in prison for two years, right? I mean, the, Tyler and Heath took you through those trials. If you remember, he went through, uh, you know, Felix to Festus to Agrippa. All right. And then he's on his way to uh, Rome to see Caesar because he appealed to Caesar. And the Lord told him that you're gonna be before Caesar. So trust the Lord. Trust me in this, no matter what happens. And so he lived with that resolve in God's word. So let's pick it up here. So when it was decided, in verse one, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort made, named Julius. And embarking in an Andromanian ship, 
which is about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus and Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put out to Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra. And Lycia, there was a centurion, I'm sorry, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us abroad. When we had sailed slowly for good many days and with difficulty had arrived off of Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmoni. With With difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which the city of Lycia. And so what's going on here is that, uh, first of all, I want you to note that Luke is back in the ship. And that's important because the, the amount of detail in this passage has actually helped modern day sailors navigate rough waters because of this account, of this accurate, most accurate account of moving through rough waters which I thought was really interesting. So with him is Aristarchus, which is he later died as a martyr under Nero. And then you got Julius on the ship. He's a centurion of the Augustan cohort and escorted prisoners. He gave Paul incredible favor. Now Paul probably most likely because he's uh, a part of that or near that region uh, during the... um, Back in, if you remember him back in Acts 7 when there was that persecution that broke out and Stephen died, most of, most of the Christians there, they scattered abroad. And there was probably, most, most likely, there was a church that was planted there. And Paul got the privilege as a prisoner to go back. And he had the favor because he was trusted. And so our first leadership quality is that in order to lead through crisis, you need to be trusted. Whether that's at the home or the workplace or in ministry, There's no way you can lead people through a crisis without being trusted. And you can't be trusted if you're not a man or a woman of integrity. And so that's the first point. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, said this in the 1600s. He said, He that means as he speaks will surely do as he speaks. It is a palpable error in those ministers that makes such disproportion between their preaching and their living that they will study hard to preach exactly and study little or not at all to live exactly. All the week long is little enough to study how to speak two hours, and yet one hour seems too much to study to live all the week. We must study as hard how to live as well as how to preach. And I think that's important for us, no matter what we're doing, whether it's a life group leader or a preacher or missionary or a father in the home or a mother in the home, We need to read our Bibles so that we live well. That we're not in it for power or to to be noticed or any of those things. In fact, it is so important. Paul said this over and over and over again that we are to guard our life. Not just the the ministry or the, the content from the scriptures, what we're teaching, but be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he says in Acts 20. To shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Then he says later in 1 Timothy 4, 16, says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. How well are you paying attention to yourself and your integrity? Now look, we don't want to be people who are introspective, 
or beating ourselves up. But we do need to evaluate our lives in such a way that says, hey, do people trust us? Do my roommates trust me? Do they really trust? It's a good question to ask. Dare we ask our wife, do you trust me? It's an important question. Can you ask your kids, do you trust dad? Do you trust him? Do you follow me because I have the title of dad or do you trust me? Do you follow me because you know that my life is pure and I, I, you know, I, I live righteously? Not perfectly. It's a good question to ask. Later on, he says in Romans 2, 17 to 21, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law of the embodiment of knowledge and of of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you yourself steal? You know, it's like the parents that say, do as I say, not as I do. How do you expect the kid to follow you? Right? We should never just throw around our authority. If Paul did that, there's no way Julius would have let him go free. That was such a rare, do you know how risky that was to allow a prisoner just to go? It's like he, he just, they docked at Sidon. He just said, hey, go free, go see your friends. It says that. Go see your friends, just roam free, enjoy your time. He's a prisoner. If Paul would have just ran off, Julius would have died, been executed immediately for what he did. So how did Julius just say, go roam free, go to your friends? I mean, Julius was not a, most likely not a Christian. Paul developed such trust on that ship He had such a reputation of trust. You know how often I hear in this church, you know, hey, you know, I think this person would be a great life group leader. And someone pipes up normally and says, no, 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 no way. Why? Because there's a lack of trust and integrity there. It happens all the time, actually. Happens much like our leaders today you know you see on tv nobody trusts how do you trust how do you trust the cdc how do you trust anybody you can't there's so much misinformation there's so much of it let alone their life behind the scenes even what they're saying their content is bad but even their lives are much worse and paul's saying look you need to guard your teaching and your life And when you do, you'll be entrusted. Just like Joseph, second in command in Egypt. Just like Daniel, second in command in all of Babylon. Happens all the time. God wants to promote his people that he trusts. And he wants to promote you. The problem is, is do you preach that you shouldn't steal and steal yourself? There's many warnings in Scripture there's many warnings against the hypocrisy. Even Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 1 to 3. He says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to, the, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. 
Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. In other words, you can listen to their teaching because, you know, those people actually did believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They did believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They understood as John, uh, John 10 when Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. But the problem is your interpretation and the way you live it is in error. And he says, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Couldn't be more clear. James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 2 Corinthians 10, 6 through 3, or I'm sorry, 6, 3 to 4, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. We cannot afford that. We may have a reputation where people might say, you know what, I don't agree with Antioch, Orlando. That's fine. They're entitled to their opinion. That's fine. That's healthy. That's good. But we certainly don't want them saying they are not people of integrity. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants in God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in other words, in crisis. That's where it counts. That's where we often blow it, right? John Stott says this, Paul had nothing to hide. He was trustworthy. There was nothing in his life or lifestyle which hindered his hearers from believing or which they could have made an excuse for not believing. How many times do we at the workplace say like, oh, I would believe if I finally saw a Christian who lives it out. Right? Have you ever heard that? I have. They don't believe because the people don't model it. The teaching is right, but the life is wrong. And may, it may, we have both the teaching and the, and sometimes we have the opposite, right? We have, we have the, the, the right life and everyone just wants to please man and be nice and everything and that their teaching is horrendous and leads people astray. They believed him because he was believable. What he said and what he was were all of a piece, which by the way, that's what the definition of integrity means. It means whole. It means all in one piece. When, when, uh, when Isaiah was before the throne in Isaiah 6, right, he was disintegrated. That word just means uh, the opposite of integrity. It's, it's disintegrated. He's in all in different pieces. He's all over, his, his whole life strung all over the place. You might get this piece on Monday and this piece on Tuesday. And this piece on Friday and Sunday. Which piece are people getting of you? The whole or the piece? Right? Are they getting a different you at the workplace? 2 Corinthians 4.2 says this, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Guys, every one of you guys can stand before each other and say, and, and, and model a godly life. But could you stand before your friends and say, my conscience is clear before you. That means men, as you're looking at girls, could you say to them as you're talking to them, could you say, my conscience is clear. I don't look at you that way. Now, of course, don't say that. That would be awkward. But they don't know. Only God knows your motives. And man will know your motives because normally somehow they end up manifesting. 
right? What comes out of the heart. Jesus had that problem with his disciples. They're all worried about washing hands and all those rituals, which were symbolic and they were good. But he said what comes out of the heart, that's what defiles you. David Hume, an 18th century British deist philosopher who rejected historical Christianity. Some of you might know him if you've studied it. A friend once met him hurrying along the London street and asked him where he was going. Hume replied that he was going to hear George Whitfield preach. But surely, his friend asked in astonishment, you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? No, I don't, answered Hume, but he does. People want to be around sincere people. People are attracted to people that actually believe it and live it. And in order to be that person, we need the grace of God. Because none of us can do it. We can't. It's impossible. In 1954, Billy Graham preached in London, and 12,000 came to him every night for three months. Anytime I read about Billy Graham, I'm like floored and blown away. I just, I, how could, I, I just, how could God's grace sustain this guy? I was amazed by it. John Stott looked around at the crowds who was in London, a pastor, and then thought about the empty, half-empty churches as he saw, often saw in England. Uh, probably a tinge of jealousy in some ways. Why do people come and listen to Billy Graham and when they don't come and listen to us? There are many answers, but one keeps coming to the top, and it's this. There is an indisputable sincerity about the young American van- evangelist. Even his fiercest critics all can see that he is sincere. I really believe he is the first transparently sincere Christian preacher many of these people have ever heard. Even unbelievers couldn't stay away from him. They had to be in his presence because he was so pure and righteous. And then the journey goes on. Left, they left Sidon and they went to Cyrus for shelter. Now understand that this Arjuminian ship, it wasn't built in such a way to, to go through the open sea. So they, if you look at the back of your maps, everybody go there, okay? Just a little map lesson. Now, if your Bible doesn't have maps, go out and buy another one. <laughs> but you need maps, okay? It helps you. Now, look, Caesarea, if you look at the, Paul's journey to Rome, which is usually the last map, and you could see in Caesarea, that's where he was for a couple of years. Remember, he was in prison. He would go to the different trials. And then he went to Sidon, which we just saw. And then, look, he hugged the coast because those ships could not go in the open sea. It was too dangerous. And it was getting towards September, October, and in those months between November and February-ish, you could not go in the open sea. It was very too dangerous. In fact, you couldn't even ride on water during that time. It was too dangerous, let alone the open sea. So you see him in Sinaitis, and then he's going south towards Crete. And they, they tried to find shelter around the island so it wasn't dangerous because the, the, a lot of those islands were rocky and they would be sure to shipwreck. But it's helpful to see the map just to, so that you can see where Paul went in the journey and, uh, and just realize that this man went through a whole lot. It's humbling when you look at it. Uh, Kevin was, uh, I was so thankful that he got to drive the, the car down uh, from Chicago 18 hours, and it turned into 24 for him. 
for certain reasons. I don't know. But uh, he said he'll never do the trip again, for the record. I think he needs a history in Paul's journeys uh, as him and Josh came down realizing what they went through. Uh, and he had a, a nice minivan. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. <laughs> I missed home. I told you I just miss, miss being here. All right. So, anyways, um, moving on. They had to arrive. So, basically, for these uh, sailors to make money, they, they went ahead and they, they picked up some grain to bring to Rome. And so, they were on a mission. They're a mission to drop off the prisoners, but also drop off the grain and make some money and make sure that they don't get killed in the process, both by the, either the prisoners escaping or them not making it because it was those, the waters were so rough. Number two, I want to just say, number one would be that they, leaders need to be trusted. Number two is that they demonstrate wisdom. They demonstrate wisdom. In verse 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over. Now he's talking about the, what kind of fast was that? That was the um, Day of Atonement fast, which is the tail end of September and the beginning of October. So we, we have uh, proof here that uh, with Luke's details that this is when the rough waters would start. And Paul began to admonish them or warn them. He says, and to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only for the cargo, but the ship, but also our very life. Now, this isn't divine revelation. This is his wisdom. Now, keep in mind, Paul did go through how many shipwrecks? We have record, right? How many did he go through in 2 Corinthians 11? Three. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Just a little pop quiz. But, so he's experienced. He knows what shipwrecks are like. He's like, please, if you'd listen, we don't have to go through another one. They're horrendous. They're awful. I would rather get there safely. And so he was concerned for the people's safety. Good leaders are always concerned, not just for themselves, but for others. They demonstrate wisdom and care. A lot of times leaders will just demonstrate wisdom for their own purposes, selfishly. But he demonstrated wisdom for the whole, not, not just for animate objects, you know, people, but also inanimate, the ship, the cargo, for their goods, for their well-being. Leaders in crisis must not just care for themselves, but for others. That's what good shepherds do. They care for their flock and make sure they're in good shape. But, you know, of course... Instead, but the centurion, Julius, was more persuaded by the pilot. Now, probably Julius probably understood, but he needed to probably uh, you know, direct his attention towards the professionals, which were the pilot and the captain of the ship. And by then, instead of what Paul's advice was, and of course that didn't turn out well if you read for in, in a moment here, but because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, in the north, the northeast, it was not suitable for wintering. They needed to get to the southwest, which was towards Phoenix, the, and not the city of Arizona, but the other side of Crete. The majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest, 
and Northwest and spend the winter there. So it's much more favorable, it's much more comfortable, and the sailors are right in that sense. But Paul was saying, we may not make it. Um, but when the moderate south wind came, and this is a moderate, and I keep, there's momentum building here. When a moderate south wind came, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete uh, close inshore. So they hugged it as much as they possibly could without being hit uh, or hitting some sort of reef. And then in uh, verse 14, it says, But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uquilio, which just means kind of like those northeaster, the, the northeaster, those ones that are up in like Boston and uh, New York, those, the, those ones coming in the fall. They're brutal. Uh, and and so I don't know, have you ever seen the dangerous catch? Have you ever watched that? That's terrifying. Makes you appreciate the next time that you, uh, you actually have a crab right? That is horrendous. There's like ice on the ship. Like just, it's absolutely crazy. But that's kind of like what I picture these things as, as the ship is violently, violently being tossed in the wind. And when the ship was caught in it, it could not face the wind. We gave way to it. In other words, they gave up and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Claudia, we scarcely were able to get the ship's boat under control. So they had a little bit of a relief. But after they had hoisted it up, they used the supporting cables, which is called frapping, and undergirding the ship. They just tied ropes underneath the hull of the ship. And then aground, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, which just is uh, North Africa, is near Tunisia. They had a lot of sandbars. They were worried. They were very far from it, if you look on the map. But they were worried about it. They'd heard that if you get too close to here, the whole ship is going to be done because they'll run into the sandbars. And let, so they let down their anchor to drag uh, and let themselves be driven along. The next day, as they were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. So they just lightened the load. They just started throwing things off. And then on the third day, they threw the, ship, the ship's tackle overboard. Some even probably important tools that they said they knew they were going to probably lose their lives at this point. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us. In other words, that's another way of saying it was a massive, life-threatening beast of a storm. For then on all hope of our being, on all hope of being saved uh, was gradually abandoned. They lost all hope realizing we're done. And when they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood in the midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Now, I read this and I couldn't help but think of the, I told you so, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's it, by the way. You may have another opinion, but I don't think that's Paul. He was sarcastic in other ways. I mean, he definitely was sarcastic in 1 Corinthians 14 and some other areas uh, of, of his letters. But I don't think this was the, he's, he's basically saying, look, we missed it last time. That was my advice. That was my wisdom. But we're, we, we cannot miss it this time. I have divine revelation. And he says this, yet I, now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. So last time he said that uh, he's most likely, it was, it was his advice. He was just, uh, hypothetically speaking, this is probably what I had gone through in the three shipwrecks. Hey, we need to listen, you need to listen to me. And this time he's saying, look, God spoke to me. I'm trusting his word. This is what he said. God to whom I belong to and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Now, in Acts 23, 11, it says, but on the night immediately following, this is when he was going through his trials, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You know what good leaders do? They're confident in God's word. It wasn't his intuition or his gut or his optimism or his emotions or his idealism, but it was simply the word of God he trusted. God just kept over and over and over. You will be, even before, even when he got saved, you will be a witness to the Gentiles. I'm setting you apart from my service. If you're not dead, you're not done. That's why we should never fear death. That's why I'm always amazed. I, I preached at my, my pastor's church. He's uh, one of my pastor friends. He wasn't, he wasn't technically my pastor up in Wheaton. But he's 84 this September. And he's still going. And at the school I go to, the president of the school, he's 82 and he's still going. It's amazing. These people are my heroes. One pastors a very small church. The other pastors a very large one. But it doesn't matter. What matters is faithfulness. That's what matters more than anything else. And even more than that, preaching the word. Those who preach the word, God will always honor the church and honor the leaders who honor his word. Always. Where are we? (laughs) Okay, here we are. Verse 25. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Now, these people were not up to this because all they were thinking is, we're going to die is because they saw the storm. But Paul saw the same storm, the same crisis as everybody else, but he also believed God's word. And that is what it's important to remember that whatever crisis you're in, however you're leading, whether you're leading your small family or whether you're leading your workplace or the church, you've got to remember one thing. God's word remains true and scripture cannot be broken even in the midst of the craziest crisis on the planet. Amen? That is what he trusted. He was confident in God's word. And not only that, but good leaders exhibit courage and they encourage their people. How could you encourage your people if you yourself are so worried, so out of shape, so, so concerned about the news? And so how do, you, how do you even comfort your kids? How do you have the confidence to Say it's going to be okay. Where do you hear that from? If you hear it from the Lord, you hear it from the word of God, it makes that much easier to be able to help other people next to you. And the world is looking for courageous leaders, aren't they? Courageous leaders that are full of peace. Paul exhibited such peace. And by the way, let me just remind you again, he was a prisoner. He was the lowest of lowest. He had no rights. And all these people were looking to him now. 
Paul, please get us to safety. Please, please, please. And then after they land, okay, put me in jail now. (laughs) Because Paul's life was not his own. He said that in Acts 20, didn't he? My life is not my own. And also I think what is very interesting from this passage, and I think it's worth noting, that the Lord protects others because of his favor on his people. That's very important. Let me prove that. Genesis 39, verse 5, it says, It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and all, or over all that he had owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of who? Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. How many times do you guys see? Remember even Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The city is spared for Lot and a few righteous households are even if you live you know spouses that one spouse is saved another spouse is unsaved god says he will preserve the house because of the one that is righteous you know how terrifying that actually is for the unbeliever the only reason why the lord is actually sparing me and has any blessing on this household is because of my spouse because the lord would be faithful is faithful to his people Genesis 39, 29, it's another part. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper and did just for that reference for the unbelieving husband. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, it says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And that ship probably should have gone down in God's judgment. But for whatever reason, God had a plan for Paul and he brought them all to safety. Why? Because of his grace. Paul didn't deserve it either. And I don't think we should be waltzing around thinking, oh, I'm such a blessed man because I'm his and, and dip into the more prosperity teaching, charismatic stuff. We don't need to do that. It's all by grace. But there is a principle in Scripture that does seem to show, at least my understanding of it, that there is a level of protection, perhaps even over your workplace. Maybe your workplace is preserved, as ungodly as it is. A lot of times you come home like, oh, my boss this, my boss this. Maybe you say, thank you, Lord, that you're preserving this place because there are a few righteous men in the place. And he's preserving it because he has you right where he wants you. Now, don't take that too far, but there is a, there's a principle there. Paul also lived, leaders need to live for the glory of God and serve in the service of others. Leaders live for the glory of God and the service of others. That is their motive. That is their highest motive. You see, Paul, he says, look, we must run this thing aground. He had a plan, and I'll get to that in a second. Let me read a few quotes here from a few pastors. It says, No man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. The chief effect of every sermon should be to unveil Christ and the chief art of the preacher is to conceal himself. Amen? If we're in the boat and God has us there, in a crisis, 
And I'm not trying to allegorize this. There's no allegory here. This happened in real time. And these are real principles you can learn. But if he has you in that boat and you're flowing through the storms and, and the, the, the waves are hitting the boat and coming inside the boat and your ship is tanking, don't get in the way. Don't be the hero. Paul wasn't trying to be some sort of hero. He was simply just being faithful to, to who God called him to be. And his leadership emerged. It was beautiful. He wasn't trying. He didn't walk in there like, okay, none of these jokers are leaders, so I'm going to lead. He just said, Lord, if you want to get me to Rome and these guys are falling apart, I don't use me, if you use me, fine. If you don't want to use me, I'll see you in a moment. <laughs> face to face. Leaders take initiative. They have a plan. They have a direction. Doesn't, I mean, as, as little girls in your house or as boys, I mean, you, you wanted to know dad had a plan, right? When it was crazy or whatever. He's, dad, do you have a plan? I mean, it's kind of terrifying when, I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, we could do that in honesty. We could say, well, you know what? I know who does have a plan, the Lord. He's got a plan. And I'm going to, tr- let's trust him as a family. But we must have run aground on a certain island. Paul knew when we're not going to save the ship. The Lord didn't promise the saving of the ship. But he did promise the saving of of the people, the 276 people who are on board. Paul was the designated leader as a prisoner. He had confidence in God's word. He was a man of wisdom. He encouraged his people. He relied on God's word. He was a man who was uh, fit for the job, so to speak. But after two weeks of hellish conditions, we pick up here in verse 27. But on the 14th, 14th night, came and as we were being driven on the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took surroundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might have run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out the anchors from the boat, Paul, excuse me, Paul said to the centurion, to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. So these guys, again, didn't prove that they did not trust Paul's word and they were figuring, hey, let's just escape and let's let's get out of here. Um, You don't abandon ship until it's the right time. And the soldiers then cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and, and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, and look at the incredible detail that you see here. That's what strikes me about this passage, incredible detail of God's word. God wants us to see something here. Do not just, most people, Acts 27 is not very often preached, unless it's some sort of allegory in the storms of life. But but this passage is profound in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I'll get to the quote here in a moment from one scholar. But he says, you know what? Take food. Today is the 14th day, and you have been constantly watching and going without eating and have taken nothing. Have you ever been seasick? Is it the first thing you want is food? Have you ever been seasick? It's, it's awful. And a cruise ship or 
oh, it's the worst. I mean, when the, you know, it, the thing's just going like, the, I've heard stories being on, the, on a cruise ship where the, the, literally it goes like this and all the plates just fly off the, your table at dinner. I'm just, it's like the emoji when you turn green, you got throw up coming out. That's what it reminds me of. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food for this is for your preservation for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Such confidence in the word of God over and over and over again. And leaders also lead by example. Having said this, he took the bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and he broke it and began to eat it. He said, look, I don't feel like eating, but I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna model it. I'm gonna give you food because you're gonna need it. It's gonna sustain you through the shipwreck. All of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Well, you take it or leave it, <laughs> is what Paul was ultimately saying. There's going to be no food left. Well, when, when the day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with, with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off all the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes, loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, and they were heading for the beach. But, the striking, but striking a reef, or a, some say it's like a, a muddy area in that, in that uh, bay area, which is now called uh, St. Paul's Bay, which is probably pretty appropriate for that name, where there are two seas meant. And then, that, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they ran a vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The ship was literally demolished. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. They're still focused on that. But the centurion waiting to bring Paul safely through kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could, could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest should follow some on planks holding on for dear life and, other, and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. God's promises were fulfilled. There was no compromise. And I want to just point out one thing before we close here, and then uh, I'll get to my last point. But I want to show you what one scholar says about the accuracy of this detail of the voyage. Smith relates how, excuse me, this, this one did extensive research on this subject and just pointed out how incredibly accurate even the, uh, when he said, like, uh, just the distances from the locations, and everything was exactly the way Luke wrote it. Smith relates how he made careful inquiries of the experienced Mediterranean navigators in order to ascertain the mean rate of drift of a ship of its kind laid, laid to it in such a gale. The conclusion reached, which he reached was a mean drift of about 36 miles in 24 hours. That's incredible. The soundings recorded in verse 28 indicate that the ship was passing Cura, a point on the east coast of Malta, on her way to St. Paul's Bay. But the distance from Clauda to the point of Cura is 476.6 miles, which the rate as deduced from the information would take exactly 13 days, one hour and 21 minutes. And not only so, the coincidence of the actual bearing of St. Paul's Bay from Clauda and the direction in which the ship must have driven in order to avoid the Sirtis, which is the, the sandbars, is if possible still more striking than that of time actually consumed and the calculated time. 
Then, after carefully reckoning the direction of the ship's course from the direction of the wind, from the angle of the ship's head with the wind, and from the leeway, he goes on and says this, Hence, according to these calculations, a ship starting late in the evening from Clauda would by midnight on the 14th day be less than three miles from the entrance of St. Paul's Bay. Incredible. I admit that something so unimportant. You know, we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about is, you know, is the resurrection real? Is it, it, can you prove that? We're just talking about a few details of sailing a ship. And we can deduce from that that we can absolutely 100% trust the word of God. I admit that a coincidence so close, very close at this is to a certain, excuse me, certain extent accidental, but it is an accident which could not have happened had there been any inaccuracy on the part of the author of the narrative, which is Luke, with no regard to the numerous incidences upon which the calculations are founded. Or had the ship been wrecked anywhere but Malta, for there is no other place agreeing either in name or description within the limits to which we are tied down by the calculations found upon the narrative. We can absolutely trust Luke and his detail, and I'm so glad Luke on that ship to detail that. I'm sure that wasn't easy writing, was it? But somehow the Holy Spirit, as it says in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, that men were carried away by the Holy Spirit and wrote Scripture. And all scripture is what? God breathed. Theodopanustos. It's breathed out by God. All right, last but not least here, uh, I, well, I'm going to close here with uh, just a, one, th- one thought on Luther leading uh, the Reformation and, of course, crisis. And the one thing that he relied on, and, and I would say the one thing that we need to continually rely on over and over and over and over again is not our intuition, not our wisdom, but the very word of God. And he says this, there's a quote. One author says, the Reformation gave centrality to the sermon. The pulpit was higher than the altar. For Luther had held that salvation is through the word and without the word, the elements are devoid of sacramental quality, but the word is sterile unless it is spoken. And Luther goes on to say, the church owes its life to the word of promise and is nourished and preserved by the same word. The promises of God make the church, not the church, the promises of God. What is our only authority? The only authority that we have, church, is the word of God. That is my authority, that's our elders' authority, and that's our authority. That's the only thing that we have that will actually move us through one of the most challenging times in the last decade. The health of the church depends on the people who depend on God's word. Luther lived by this truth himself, notably during the greatest crisis of his life. He was excommunicated by the Catholic Church in 1521. Do you think that stopped him? He was asked to appear before the Diet of Worms, which is just a, a council, pronounced Worms in German, which included, the, which included King Charles V. Luther refused to compromise and renounce the scriptures. The council had already been made up their mind to condemn and kill Luther. And this was Luther's response. 
I am bound in conscience and held fast to the word of God. Even if I were to lose my body and my life on account of it, I cannot depart from the true word of God. And he goes on to say, I simply taught, preached, wrote the word of God. Otherwise, I did absolutely nothing. And when I slept, I slept. Whether I drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Amsdorf, the word is so greatly weakened the papacy and never a prince or an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. Simply the word did it all. You know, I can imagine that Paul said the same thing at the end of his shipwreck. (laughs) They all get there and we're going to pick up in chapter 28 in Malta for the last chapter of the book of Acts. But I can imagine him just saying, you know what, guys? The word did it all. They're probably all thanking Paul. Oh, Paul, I mean, maybe we could work things out in Rome. I could tell the story. You'd be set free. It'd be wonderful. Are you kidding? Paul couldn't take any credit for that. He simply had a word. You will be in Rome before Caesar to tell about Christ. That was his one mission. And he was going to make sure that he accomplished that mission. And his strength was the word of God. Calvin says this, whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. We're a church. And why are we a church? Because we're loving? Sure, yeah, that's part of it. Because we're missional? Yes, it's a part of it. Because we do life groups? You can make argument for that. It's because we preach the word of God that we're a church. You know why that's important, church? It's because that's not subjective. In a day of subjectivity, this is my opinion, this is this opinion, this is this man's opinion. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what God says. And God says that his church will never end. In Matthew 16, it says that there will be no end to his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The powers of darkness, death itself will not kill the church. If Luther died, he died. If Paul died, he died. If Paul died, we would still be here because God would have a way to get us the gospel message. We need to be humble And like Paul, we need to say, I did nothing. Like Luther, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. As a husband, as you get up in the morning, you sit there in the quietness of your room and you read the word and you say, Lord, do it. Do it. Whatever you got to accomplish, just do it through me. I have a hard day at work today. Lots of things going on. As a mom, you got a full day. As a student, lots going on. I can go down the list, right? The word does it all. And you might be thinking, well, the word doesn't get me up and brush my teeth. You're right, it doesn't. But it gives you wisdom. It produces fruit in you. It produces power. Ephesians 5, 18 says, be filled with the spirit. And look at the fruit after that in verse 19, all the way through uh, chapter 6. Gets you through warfare, right? Learn, uh, teaches you how to be a husband. Teaches you how to be a wife. Teaches you how to be a father and a mother. 
teaches you how to be a brother, teaches you how to be a worker, teaches you how to be an employer, employee, right? Doesn't it? Look at it. You need to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Be filled with the Word of God who wrote it. The Spirit wrote the Word through men. Fallible men. Now you might ask, how in the world do you get an infallible Scripture by fallible men? How does that work? Well, Jesus wrote it. No, Jesus didn't write one word of your Bible. He didn't write one book. He said things in it. People quoted him. But because the Holy Spirit moved through men just like you and me. Where's the power lie? Not in my hand, not in the ink, but by the Spirit. By the Spirit, says the Lord. Amen? Are we a people who rely on the Spirit? Yes. We need to do that every day of our lives. Be Spirit-filled people who trust in the Word of God and the Spirit who leads us every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word again. It is matchless. There is nothing like it in the whole world says not one jot and tittle will ever pass away 